Hi folks, I am Alan Watson. This is Cutting Through the Matrix on November the 8th, 2015. Many moons ago, I was on a talk show where the host said to me, he says, you know, you're, you're a bit of a pessimist when it comes to the future. And he was talking about the whole, you know, agenda and things like that. The things, the things that the average person might know to some extent. And uh, I, I didn't really become fussed up about it because I've had the same remarks from many people over years, even from childhood, when you point things out to them, it's outside their ken, at least the scope of the topics they're on about. And, uh, and you have to accept they don't know as much as you do. Uh, but uh, I could have gone ahead and, and uh, re- refuted his comment and so on, but I didn't bother. It wasn't worth it because he had a lot to learn and still has. But the reason that, uh, that some people might think that is that I'm not into entertaining you, you see. I never came out to entertain the public because what's happening is a massive revolution. And most revolutions, I've said many times, are bloodless or fairly bloodless. They're cultural and they're social and so on. And they change the face of uh, countries and nations and what they stand for one uh, decade might change totally into the opposite the next decade, depending on the amount of scientific indoctrination from every source possible of communication, television and so on. And fiction as well. Lots of fiction is awfully important, and as I've said many times. But uh, it's not pessimistic to understand things whatsoever. In fact, but the thing is, the trick is not to let yourself become uh, downtrodden about it. Most folk do, they'll crash. If you understand the scope, the, the, the massive scope of what's really happening and has been happening before they were born, in fact, it, it would crash them to understand that, that everything you believed in or was drummed into you to believe through your education and upbringing and all the rest of it is bogus. You don't have a democracy. You never had a democracy. And the same tycoons and their offsprings and so on, for an awful long time, folks, I mean an awful long time, who own the big corporations and all the rest of it and the controlling shares and interests and things too, have been working behind the scenes continuing a strategy, a war strategy upon the whole world uh, to bring in the system where they themselves at the top, under disguise, of course, they're almost disguised, will claim that they're big philanthropists. And I'm going to talk about that tonight to, to an extent, just touch on it, because you can't get a lot in in an hour as far as a lecture goes. So what I'm going to talk about really is some of the, the, the ones which are visible to you today. There's, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these big foundations across the planet. But you'll find they're all connected. And you can't get the average population, even, even a section of the average population in countries, to come into a massive hall and uh, give them a talk on something and have them agree on what should be done, if anything at all. But when you have an agenda, an agenda is an agenda because people who apparently are separate and massive magnets, powerful, rich, and, and so on, uh, they, when they get together 
or at least when they appear separately, I should say. That's the better way of putting it. With their own foundations, but they're all on board with one agenda, which encapsulates everything from your way of living to what you're going to believe and what you already do believe, in fact, because that's how, who gave it to you, and how you're going to be indoctrinated. And plus, uh, the, the broader, as I've said so many times, all of academia, you'll be under academia's indoctrination for an awful long time, and they're on, on board with it because they get big grants from the foundations and the movers and shakers, and even the ones who are outside the, the, the public realm. It's quite easy to buy them off, the guys at the top, to make sure they put the same curriculums in, to ensure that everyone is given the same standardized indoctrination of what's politically correct and what isn't, etc. So you're going through a massive revolution, and you see, the reason that talk show host thought was a pessimist was because he thought it was simply a matter of getting the right folk to vote for the right person, all that, all that rubbish. And I knew better, you see. I knew this, uh, that politics really is a sideline, is a sideshow, you might say, of controlling the public, making you think you've got to say in things, but you don't. In fact, again, the big philanthropists and the big businesses they own, they have full-time, uh, almost uh, equivalent to the, the government size, uh, lobbyists lobbying for certain things to get passed through law which affect all of you, including their indoctrinations. So, don't get disheartened when you meet people who think they know it all, but they know it, and really know very little. And what they do know is, is often taken straight from you, in fact, later on. Uh, but they'll never admit it has quite something to. But that's the way things are today. We're run by a war cabinet, I'd say. And these different philanthropists are not unrelated to each other. They're related in many ways, many ways, folks. As I say, when you, they're on board with the whole United Nations agenda, and I've gone into the history so many times of the United Nations and who set it up. And it's one group that set it up, based in London at the time. And uh, before that, uh, the, the League of Nations is set up, the Bank for International Settlements, the World Bank, the World Trading Organization, all these organizations you hear about, the World Court, all these things were set up by the same, same cabal for total control of the world and all of its resources. And remember, uh, if you've got the patience at all, go into cuttingthroughmatrix.com and listen to the thousands and thousands of, of talks I've given over many years on the strategy of this war cabinet, you might say. And I mean total war. I, I'm not uh, giving you a simple analogy here. I mean total war on the public. When you're not allowed to have a mind of your own and come to your own conclusions by using your free mind, then obviously your mind is not free at all. And yet, uh, through many techniques and shunning and all the rest of it, and peer shunning and so on, and shaming, uh, they've been brainwashing children for an awful long time through the school system. And I was outside of the school system. And people watched their P's and Q's wherever they happened to be. Which is ridiculous, because... Everyone should say what they actually think. It's the only way. I mean, you can imagine in the past, it was quite easy with standardized war to see there's an, an army over there that want to invade us. Let's prepare to meet them. 
and fend them off. It was quite straightforward. But when you have a war that's been declared upon you, quite silently in fact, and always denied, <laughs> always denied, it's always for the greater good, you know, and um, then it's much, much more difficult to spot for the average person who only sees the, the fallout from the agenda, but not the cause behind it and where they want to go with it all. We are little blips of time, just passing through time. Our lifespans are short, and therefore you know very little when you die. You might know what you think is quite a lot as to when you started, but it's still a very little, because the generations that went before you, within them too, with all their worrying and scurrying and working and all the rest, who tried to live and survive, they didn't have time either, most of them, to to delve into the causes of things. And sometimes they come out with erroneous causes, simply because they didn't have all the facts. Facts are very difficult to get, and um, they're getting more scarce today because of, the, again, the scientific control of all information, the rewriting of histories, for instance. It goes on all the time, has been going on again all your life. Until whole sections of history are completely altered or omitted from history books. And that's all by design as well. People don't think about that or why this happens, but it's coordinated again from a big cabal at the top who coordinates these things intergenerationally. When you go into, for instance, the League of Nations, I mentioned it before that the Communist Manifesto and the Communist, or should you say the Communist Party in, in the Soviet Union had different plans to achieve with time dates on them. Five year plans for one thing, ten from their, sometimes fifty and even a hundred year plans. Well, most folk won't live till a hundred. So why do you think these plans can, can continue to be uh, pushed ahead, you see? When one generation's dead, and it, there's still something pushing it ahead, and in control of it all to make sure that it doesn't go off track, and that's because the big foundations, which are fronts in themselves, the philanthropic organisations, can last as long as they want them to last for three hundred years or more, and generations work for them, and implement their planning and monitor them and so on, tweak them where it's not working so well to make sure it does work and they retire within working for these these organizations and the next group take over, hire, dive, hire, die and, and nothing ever comes to a standstill, there's no lapse in anything and they can start off with specialized goals for one foundation, for instance, and achieve it 100, 150, two years later. Because people are working full-time all that time. And to make sure they achieve the part of the goals that they were founded to do. But as I say, how come all these philanthropic organizations have exactly the same politically correct uh, views on everything and the same implementation of all these particular views? Nobody differs. They're on board completely with it. Nobody differs. In fact, to belong to the United Nations, which is a front group organization, uh, to be accepted by them, you must accept all of the diktats of the, of the United Nations themselves, which are utterly radical, but they're no different from all the philanthropic organizations, which are on board with the same radical agendas.
right down to altering uh, what was a man or a woman and so on. That's all part of it too. Which tells you, uh, as they would do, tell you in a court of law after, after you do your, your, your uh, interrogation of the accused, the preponderance of evidence brings you to your judgment, you see. That's what you have. And when you have them all agreeing on the same goals, these foundations, that's not normal. It isn't normal. Instantly, it's normal. Get ten people from your local area to discuss highways, for instance, in your in your area, and what should be done to improve or whatever them, and you won't get in them. You, you get you know how many of them will agree with each other. So the preponderance of evidence with philanthropic organisations when they all agree with the same agenda, an agenda is completely radical, changing everything in life and the way you're going to live. Then. It means this coordinating body of them at the top from one group. It can mean nothing else. Nothing else at all. And that body does exist. The evidence for this can be seen pretty well every day if you really had time to go through so much information or what they give out today as information. You would find that this coordinating body had their fingers in every single pie that affect you and what you eat, how you behave, what you're going to think, or your PC, your political correct indoctrination. Uh, they made you, to an extent, what you are. And you'll become that because of peer pressure, because your peer group are indoctrinated too, and everyone eventually accepts the indoctrinated role which is laid out for you to play. Uh, very few folk can stay by their opinions and and be, possibly be ostracized by the crowd, you might say. So psychology, behaviorism, neuroscience, all these different areas and, and sections now, many, many sections to do with uh, studying us, are all in play and working full time for the big foundations and their think tanks across the world and have been for a long time. I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on November the 15th, 2015. This is part two on my talk on philanthropy. A massive subject because it's so huge really in its implications and its effect on society and the whole globe for that matter. Completely tied in with the globalist movement and so on. And tentacles everywhere, basically. Um, vast armies, vast armies of non-governmental organizations uh, that do their bidding and work for them. And they have full-time staff, of course, directing all these NGOs, who are, have incredible salaries, like CEOs of corporations, and uh, massive pension plans and live like kings and queens. So... Uh, they're used for political change and societal change for, again, those way above you in your little, you know, particular worries in your own areas and so things that you're really concerned about because most folk are concerned about their, their little area or their, their country, uh, however big or small. 
and their own livelihood and even the continuation of their own particular species or creed of people. So uh, the big boys have different plans altogether and they, they are bringing in, no doubt about it, the scientifically organized society run by experts working completely hand in glove with everyone else in the big corporations. And uh, there's so much, so much involvement with them, you cannot dismiss them at all. Incredibly well organized, they all network with each other, all of the foundations, and they're all on board with the same agenda. Now I've given lots of talks over the years on the big corporations that have philanthropic organizations under their wing. And of course, uh, people know the names of some of the big ones, but they don't really know the histories of these Really, these philanthropic corporations, because that's what they are. In fact, well over a hundred years ago, in fact forever, really, you've always had small uh, groups of people getting together to help each other, altruistic uh, movements and so on, for very imminent and self-evident causes that had to be rectified or helped or alleviated in some way or another in the conditions of people's lives. But the big philanthropies have a completely different history on all of this. The big ones, they all came out again with uh, from a movement created in England in the 1800s. And um, this organization that ran, uh, that was a movement basically, is the same organization uh, that wanted uh, an expanded empire across the whole world, a world empire. It had different names because it had to be very secretive in the way it was um, put across to the general public with front organizations and so on. But they used Oxford, of course, and they called the Oxford Movement. And that was to, to expand the British empire, structural system of government across the entire globe. But they also talked about free trade and things like that and civilizing barbarians, in fact, in Africa, elsewhere. Uh, that was the way that they really put it across to their followers at the time. And you had, um, I think it was Dean Ruskin at, uh, who taught this in the university there. And he influenced Cecil Rhodes, in fact. Now, the organization that ran all of them uh, eventually became known as the Lord Alfred Milner Group, uh, after Milner died, generally, uh, because th- this was an incredible structural system, well-organized system, that uh, was already involved in running the British government quietly by infiltrating their members all through the government, and they'd taken it over effectively before the 1900s. And it didn't come out, really, as an organization until they changed the name to the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And there are other members across the planet that couldn't accept the word royal. They'd simply use the names like Council on Foreign Relations, things like that. And had special branches made up for Pacific uh, relations and all the rest of it too, to integrate countries into massive trading blocks, which would standardize their economies and then from their economies to their legal systems until they're, they're all under the same um, block power, you might say, a super parliament that would eventually turn into a global government running them all. And it's been, it's been on the go for all this time. 
So when philanthropies sprung up in their wake, of course, or even quite a few put out by them, you find that uh, they naturally owned them, or else they took ones over that had established themselves by big corporate magnets who started them up initially. Because wherever you have a, a, a power of influence, it will be taken over by uh, the ones at the very, very top, naturally. There's no greater way to take over and direct the whole world through something that's called a charitable foundation with its hundreds of armies underneath it, uh, all mobilized to push global warming and massive taxation and you can't live on the, uh, as you used to live and all the rest of it and, and to bring it to a state of austerity. All on board with it. You just can't do that without some coordination between them all. They're all interrelated. Uh, they have, say they have this tax-free status and it's hard to attack them. Well, they're trying to do good, you see. And they're involved in every sphere of life, including the complete destruction of the old system of the family unit, naturally, to bring in all the new. You must destroy the old to bring in the new. And we've all lived our lives watching the destruction of so many things that held your nation together as it it was structured too, including the massive... um, We've watched the massive influx of immigration, forced immigration too, uh, often your tax money pay for them to come in in order to dilute the old system and get rid of your particular, let's say, race or creed or whatever it happens to be. That's all planned uh, long ago and it's come to obvious fruition in your own lifetime. And it's not finished yet. So they have many, many objectives and goals, and they want a world where uh, there's only one dominant minority running the world, and they will run all uh, the hand-in-glove government-philanthropy organizations out there. And uh, that's how it is already, in fact. Uh, The Council on Foreign Relations had an article out a few years ago. I read it on the air at the time where they said it was time for philanthropists to take up the true positions in helping to run the world, you see. So uh, it's all been done. They're out in the open now. And again, they're hidden from criticism by the term charitable organization. Now, no one ever challenges them as to why does a charitable organization have the right to dictate policy to governments and why do governments in fact accept the pressure that, that the sea has put upon them by these big organizations. Uh, of course, we all know the answer to that if you've followed my talks for all the years uh, because everything's completely interwoven today. Nothing is what it seems to be including your governments, of course, too. In fact, we've never had such terrible propaganda about everything as we have today from all government departments across the planet. Now you have the big philanthropic organizations funding uh, special interest groups, of course, which they set up and run in the first place, to do with global warming, climate change, all that kind of thing, and they they create the activists and they run the armies of uh, NGOs through universities and through society. And they also have ones for the scientists who are all on board with it too. They have, again, non-governmental organizations, coalitions of concerned scientists and things like that who, of course, claim that they 
want a more responsible position in helping running the world's affairs. Old idea again, a psychiatrist on board with it too, it wasn't long ago, even prior to, and in fact that's part of the reason they, they created psychiatry, to help run the world and make it proper, run properly, you see, and make sure only sane people would run it. Now, luckily they train the people and they themselves obviously are sane, even though if you do studies on psychiatry and psychology, you'll find so many of the people who go into it, go into it for the old reason of physician heal thyself, they know there's something wrong with themselves. But again, that's by and by. The reality is we have the, the scientific control of society, and that's what it's always been about. As I say, we're on the go towards the big global society. And of course, you need now massive crisis to create the global society. As crisis from disease, the World Health Organization, the United Nations, a crisis from terrorists, uh, everywhere, blah, blah, blah. We can't have this kind of society anymore. We need a global structure to take care of it, a standardized system and culture for all the peoples. All that kind of stuff. And, of course, you know, too, uh, that if you try and force the same system that they forced on the West for so long on the peoples who are having the terrorist uh, organizations and running them, uh, they're going to have a lot more fallout that way because these folk are terribly ethnocentric. And the West, of course, being uh, a different kind of people, are more individualistic in their, their natures and they, they don't all just jump together uh, and congeal together uh, when threatened or even even the, the vague threat of something. Just, uh, they've got all kinds of opinions on things. You don't get that with ethnocentric groups that are very rich and powerful, many of them too. So anyway, there's much, much more to this than meets the eye. I'm going to put in tonight uh, some of the, again, the far left uh, stuff, only because there's one or two points they make which is kind of interesting. And, and part of what they talk about is that philanthropy, what is philanthropy in the first place? And how, how do these organizations get their funding? And they actually say in some of them, like this one here, um, from a guy who worked within some of the big ones, including George Soros's Open Society Institute and so on. But, uh, he talks about what they are and the power that they do have for sure. Uh, but how they get their money. And they get their money from the, the very rich, of course, who give from their income for their year a portion of that income, and which is, is tax-free for the press, for the actual donors, tax-free. The, the tax-free foundation they give it to receives it without paying taxes either of, on that same thing. And their point, their argument is that um, it makes this it really is a, a tax burden on the rest of society because government uh, um, is get is losing taxes, and of course they put all the what they want from taxes onto the rest of the population, but they're losing taxes from the ultra rich. That was part of the reason they set up these philanthropic organisations in the first place. Uh, that was one part of it, of course, because the rich will never make themselves poor by helping others. There's always another angle to everything, you understand. But this one, organi- this one uh, article, as I say, 
is left wing, it's very left wing, and you'll see a lot, see a lot of stuff in it which you, you can't agree with, but folk are indoctrinated, you can't really help anyway. But they do give little bits of information out, even uh, though the, the rest of the information is your, your standard far, far left, uh, total change type of way of looking at the whole world. But it's called uh, charity is great, but it won't bring real change. Now, what is real change? And again, when you hear buzzwords like change, change is good, change, Obama said change, and everybody's really uh, ruining the day that they fell for that one because he brought change alright, and it was, it was nothing that anybody actually wanted. It never, it never will be. Whenever you hear a term you don't understand, ask them to break it down and explain what they mean by it. <laughs> but again, people don't they go and vote through emotion, it seems. And uh, as I say, this, art, this particular one, it, it talks about how it works and how the, how the money comes in, how it's spent and so on. But they don't really go into the incredible salaries that the big executives get inside the charitable foundations because they're now part of this global governance structure, as they call it, you see. They talk about Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, of course. And they also just mentioned some of the, the people who run these organizations. Now, here's a little point that they don't mention. None of them do, as I say. When you get associations that you can take over, because they, they're, they're achieving so much wealth and power, it will be infiltrated and taken over quite very quickly by the most organized people. Very quickly. And that happened to all the foundations. Because look at the power they wield and the kind of money they can move back and forth or take away from certain areas just on a whim. And the massive effects it will eventually have, in fact immediately have, on those areas that they simply withdraw support from. The same thing goes for the big uh, investment organizations where pensions and so on are, are thrown into in the big casino you'll find that the same organized people that took over philanthropy a long, long ago uh, also took over all of that too because they wield more power than the individual multi-billionaires who invest with them or put their money into their stocks and the rest of it because the big CEOs have more power than them. Look at all of the multi-billionaires, just one of them. They can take that money out from investments and move it somewhere else just like that on a whim. That's a lot of power. There's all kinds of governance, as they call it, that you don't realize exist. And they do. And when you get them all working on the same agenda, you know, there's, a, there's one organization running them all with their own operatives inside of it at the top. Now, getting back to this one here, um, I'll mention this article here, which is called, Is Philanthropy Bad for Democracy? Because eventually the philanthropic organizations dictate the changes that they're after and other groups, including other radical groups too, will often complain that they're being left out of it, out of the picture. So there's many, many different angles to this. And the other one too, left wing, is bargain for billionaires, why philanthropy is more about public relations than progress. Again, it's progress. Who, de- who determines what progress? You can understand. Pro- you never take anything at its face value. Look, ask, ask what they're talking about when they're talking about what do they envisage as progress? It's quite simple. It's easy to do. 
Anyway, as his charity is great, but it won't bring real change. It works perpetuates the myth that we need the ultra-rich. There's many ways that the, the far left, who use all these organizations and often work for them, see, see how they're being run as well. But just think of the planet's best human being. Who are you thinking of? Pope Francis, your parents, Justin Bieber. Counted the business insider, it's Mark Zuckerberg, because he's planning to donate $1 billion, less than 5% of his massive fortune, to charity. Now, you find these organizations, big foundations, part of the deal that they have with these massive trusts that they are, because that's really what they are, is that they only have to give 5% of what gets into them, how much they have to supposedly the causes that they're set up to do, the charitable causes. 5%, that's all. It says, well, it's certainly welcome. Philanthropy is far more insidious than it appears at first sight. It tends to lead to fawning press coverage, but little in the way of good reform. Worse, it perpetuates the myth that the society's problems can be solved by the rich and powerful. It says, there's a very real sense in which it would be hard for Zuckerberg to have done less for the poor. After all, he and his rich Silicon Valley friends regularly use their wealth to lobby for policies that would make them even richer, even if in the guise of social responsibility. Uh, this is Chris Rock notes, behind every great fortune is a great crime, and behind Zuckerberg's wealth there's a relentless monetization of privacy, or more accurately, the lack thereof. Now, I've always said that these characters that give you, and especially in more recent history, the last couple hundred years, basically, are really frontmen for one big organization. And they're made famous with a lot of nonsense behind them, of just rags to riches type of thing. Oh, they're just a natural genius. Let me swallow that rubbish because we like it. It's like, a, it's like a, some kind of Hollywood story, you see. But... Um, what was the real goal of all? The goal was always to take away your privacy and and uh, make sure that this kind of government, the one above the one that you have that works for it, it knows all about you constantly in real time, updated daily, knowing everything you're doing. Because one global powerful group can only rest in peace when they have total control over everything and have complete knowledge of all of your business and what you're up to at all times of the day. You see? Only then can they relax. But it says, Carson's ubiquitous uh, flattery is nothing like the unctuous adoration festooned by Matthew Bishop Michael Green in her book, Philanthro Capitalism, which bears their well in subheader, How the Rich Can Save the World. The authors write approvingly that today's philanthropic capitalists see a world full of big problems that they, perhaps only they, can and must put right. Maybe, but there could also be a more insidious motive. And then they go on to H.L. Mencken, who said that the urge to save humanity is almost always a false front for the urge to rule. And that's very true. That's true. Power is what all messiahs really seek, not the chance to serve. While well, some philanthropists support good causes like Bloomberg's fight against big tobacco, other pet causes are not so humanitarian. While we may applaud the work of Bill Gates, many philanthropic capitalists like the Adelsons and the Kochs have decided their philanthropic venture will be empowering the Ted Cruises of the world to wreak havoc. Wealth is power, and concentrated wealth is concentrated power. The most benevolent inventions are also the cruelest. And it goes on and on and on. 
it's a racket, but it's also a, a great cover for one powerful group. A very old group. As I say, it goes back, and you can even trace it, popping its head up down through history, but into definitely with the Lord Alfred Milner group, uh, where even Winston Churchill bomb bastard it uh, when he found out that policy wasn't getting made by the government that he was working for, but, but, but the Lord Alfred Milner group, they didn't even have that title at the time. And it had a different title so that folk would never catch on to who they actually were. But they were well organized. They caused the South African War, the Boer War, and they, they were behind the, the movement to educate the general public through fiction and everything else and, and all the news which they owned at the time. Uh, or that they would build up a war for a world war uh, with Germany as a main opponent. That was World War One, and they actually did it. So that's how the world is truly run. Also, this article here is flattery bad for democracy, and it'll give you the idea of uh, the kind of money they, they rake in. And mind you too, the money that they get in too, in order to pay 5% out for taxes, they're allowed to invest again too until there were trillions actually, some of them. And this article, Plutocrats at Work, How Big Philanthropy Undermines Democracy. And this is, um, it gives you the full story of it. The big philanthropy was born in the US in the early 20th century. It was born in London. This is the Russell Sage Foundation received its charter in 1907, the Carnegie Corporation in 1911, and the Rockefeller Foundation in 1913. By the way, I'll also put a link up tonight uh, to do with the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, and it tells you in it, uh, and it's that the and it's from the remember too. I've mentioned talks. Go into the archive section. Remember, I always use it at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. I gave uh, lots of talks on the big foundations years ago and their complete involvement with the CIA. Now, the CIA is not what anyone thinks it is. It's not there for what Americans will consider their personal health or their salvation and keeping things strong for you inside the country with the way you identify yourself with the country. They have a completely different agenda. And uh, I'll, I'll, as I say, I'll mention, I'll put a link up uh, tonight to, to show you at least what came out from the Rees Commission done an awful long time ago uh, when uh, the, the U.S. Congress put Norman Dodds uh, out there to find out why these foundations were supporting what it seemed to be at the time, not just left-wing causes, but revolutionary communist causes. And you should be asking that. But you'll find, too, in this, this link I'll put up, that the CIA were heavily involved with uh, the Rockefeller Foundation. But they were the same with all the foundations. The CIA, to me, is like a private corporation. That's how I see it. It's, it's so secretive that it literally is a... Um, an agenda-driven, well-organized agenda-driven organization. Uh, it's a law unto itself, and it, it doesn't, it's not trying to keep the, the, the kind of old um, John Boy Walton story alive. It's completely globalist in its intentions for power and massive change. 
But this uh, article says there were strange new creatures, quite unlike traditional charities, these foundations, that vastly greater assets and were structured legally and financially to last forever. And that's why they can get their jobs done. Some of the foundations had particular goals when they set out to turn everything upside down. I mean everything, folks. The way you could relate to each other, the way you'd be educated or indoctrinated and so on, what you'd believe, what you wouldn't believe. I say there's destruction of family units and various other things too. All of that. Uh, uh, so anyway, this is that vastly greater assets and more structured legally financially to last forever. They could get the jobs done, their goals done. They could, over generations of, of hiring new CEOs, retiring others, and they could always work towards the same goals. We in our own little limited lifestyle, uh, will change our minds umpteen different times on particular things through experience of living your one little life, your short life. And you might have a completely different view by the time you're, you're 60 as you, you did when you were 18 or 20. Uh, but foundations, no, they can, they can achieve their transitions, as I like to call it, that mean their goals for change. Planned, planned, orchestrated, instituted change. And it says, they were affiliated with no religious denomination and adopted grand open-ended missions along the lines of uh, such as to improve the human condition. Again, when you hear terms like that, you must remember what, it's not, a, it sounds so simple. And you'll, you'll put upon that term, you'll, you'll transfer upon it what you think that means, rather than ask them what they mean by that. They were launched in essence as immense tax exempt private corporations. Uh, dealing in supposed good works, but they would do a good according to their own lights, and they would intervene in public life with no accountability to the public. From the start, the mega-foundations provoked hostility across the political spectrum. There are many detractors, or to their many detractors, they look like centers of plutocratic power that threatened democratic governance. I would say that's an old argument because the, the, the whole thing now is so interwoven with government or governance as you think about it. They can't tell the difference. Setting up uh, do-good corporations, critics said, was merely a ploy to secure the wealth and clean up the reputations of business moguls who amassed fortunes during the Gilded Age. Consider the reaction of John D. Rockefeller's initial request for a charter from the U.S. Senate. He eventually received one from New York State. It says, in spite of his close ties to big business, progressive presidential candidate Theodore Roosevelt opposed the effort, claiming uh, that uh, no amount of charity in spending such fortunes as Rockefeller's can compensate in any way for the misconduct in acquiring them. The conservative Republican candidate, William Howard Taft, denounced the effort as a bill to incorporate Mr. Rockefeller, Samuel Gompers, president of the American Federation of Labor. <laughs> Quite a story to that guy, too. Sneered that the one thing that the world would gratefully accept from Mr. Rockefeller now would be the establishment of a great endowment of research and education to help other people see in time how they can keep from being like him. And that little piece was from... Peter Dobkin Hall, a historical overview of philanthropy, voluntarily associations and non-profit organizations in the U.S. Since the social policy ideas of the new foundations were shaped by their understanding of modern research-based medicine, especially germ theory. Now, you probably know that the Rockefeller Foundation 
literally treated the AMA, American Medical Association, and uh, the big organizations uh, such as themselves still run it today. They decide what treatments you're going to get. They have their own uh, particular um, uh, vaccine centers and so on. And they tell government, use these and use that, use these medications. And they even help design what uh, the the whole curriculum for the, for inductees into medicine and so on, who just become more drug pushers for the big farmers and so on. And it says here that, um, 100, 100 years later, big philanthropy still aims to solve the world's problems with foundation trustees deciding what is a problem and how to fix it. They may act with good intentions, but they define good. The arrangement remains uh, thoroughly bureaucratic. It's exercise of wealth-derived power in the public sphere with minimal democratic controls and civic obligations. Controls and obligations include uh, filing an annual IRS form. Uh, They they don't have to do it since 1969. Pay an annual excise tax of up to 2% on net investment income. Uh, There are regulations against self-dealing lobbying although uh, educating lawmakers is illegal. I would say re-educating them and supporting candidates for public office. Well, they all do that. They all, they all do that, folks, through the, the, the guys who donate to them. They're donors. Also, the big corporations uh, put their own your politicians in, and the, the big corporations own the philanthropic organizations. It's all completely intertwined, you understand, naturally. And then Article 2 from Left Wing again is um, the importance of criticizing philanthropy. Uh, last month, readers of the Chronicle of Philanthropy, a trade journal of the non-profit world, were treated to a memorable op-ed. It was written by John Arnold, 40-year-old uh, former Enron natural gas trader and hedge fund funder, who with his wife ranked third on the 2013 list of the nation's most generous benefactors. Attacks and vitriol will not deter me from supporting fixes to public policy, the piece's headline announced. And it went on to document the intensely personal public attacks Arnold has endured in retaliation for his contributions to the causes of education, criminal justice and pension reform. He was falsely charged with attempting to make his donations surreptitiously, he claimed, and had been the target of selective reporting regarding his partisan sympathies, smeared, for instance, as a right-wing ideologue, without a mention of the fact that he raised money for Obama. And he's been subjected to a steady stream of juvenile insults. One critic quipped that he had a jug-eared face of a Division Three women's basketball coach. That last one evidently stung. These days we've grown used to billionaires sticking claims to victimhood. Witness, for instance, the venture capitalist Tom Perkins comparing the media's focus on income inequality to the Nazis' perpetration of uh, Kristallnacht. But such laments tend to involve the makers grousing about their rough treatment at the hands of takers. Arnold's op-ed aired a different grievance. He spoke not as an accumulator of a fortune, but as a redistributor of one. This was a defiant criticure of the persecuted philanthropist. 
It's always a bit uncomfortable to see a private citizen taking his knocks in the public square. We probably shouldn't take much pleasure in a spectacle. Yet in the midst of his latest gilded age, or this latest gilded age, as the prerogatives of concentrated wealth marched almost with little resistance, an aggressive, even at times antagonistic, engagement between the public and their benefactors shouldn't be considered a mark of, in, of incivility. It should be considered a democratic imperative. Then he goes through the Rockefeller and different ones and so on. By the way, I think, um, yeah, the Rockefeller Foundation uh, took the Ford Foundation under its wing as well. So now, they, you know, they're just, like, just like corporations almost do, they have takeovers and bring all their cash into as well too and so on. As I say, I mean, if you want a career, going to want to be a CEO of a, of a philanthropic organization, you'll have the same income as the, the top CEOs of big oil companies on them, you know. It's not bad at all, eh? And you'd be very rich and very powerful with the kind of power that you can sway. But just means the general public. Now here's an article too to show you how these big so-called philanthropists are changing the world. And there's much more behind the ones who are doing this particular kind of change than you can imagine. And that's all you're left to do because of laws and so is, is to imagine why. But it says Victor Orban slams George Soros again and says the well-funded activists are causing the migrant crisis. Firebrand Hungarian Prime Minister Victor Orban has for the second time during Europe's migrant crisis lashed out at billionaire George Soros, who he says is responsible for the continent-wide epidemic. Mr. Orban was interviewed in Hungarian media this morning. He blames likes of Soros, a massive funder of pro-migration groups across the world, for attracting what he described as an invasion of migrants to the continent, reports Der Spiegel. He said the invasion is, is driven on the one hand by people smugglers, and the other hand by those human rights activists who support everything that weakens the nation-state. And there's a reason for that, folks. There's even some of uh, people who uh, know and work with Soros too, have a lot in common with Soros, uh, an awful lot in common with Soros, who want to, have actually said they want to basically destroy the, the homogeneity, uh, the, the, the European cultures, even in one in Sweden, so it's the same kind of thing, who came from another country altogether, and has using um, her fellows to do the same things in Sweden. But it says the Western mindset in this activist network is perhaps best represented by George Soros. He uses his billions to promote his worldview in over a hundred countries. He funds a global network of foundations, uh, initiatives, projects and partners to promote his particular vision of an enlarged European Union and a world with no borders. It's completely different European visages altogether, folks. As is Breitbart London previously reported, he believes groups funded by Mr. Soros are drawing a living from the immigration crisis. His open society foundations, which provide endless streams of pro-migration talking heads for news outlets, are a case in point. The Open Society Institute, Budapest, has helped activists working with migrants on issues affecting the safety and well-being of migrants, refugees and asylum seekers, despite their return to relative peace and stability seen in Hungary following decisions taken by Mr. Orban, is repeatedly condemned his government's rhetoric and the sealing of borders to migrants, the OSF website explains. And they tell you what the blowback from 
these NGOs are and so on, why they should just be able to deal away with borders and bring everybody in and so on. It says, as far as Mr. Orban is concerned, migration policy has in fact been driven by what he calls America's naked national and imperial interests. In the past, he's also identified financial self-interest as a motive of Western groups promoting migration. There's much more to it than that. that, that, that Mr. Orban obviously doesn't know or he can't say uh, as to all of this uh, that's running the world. Much, much more. But, you know, I've, I've talked about Mr. Soros before and his history, of course, which is rather despicable, if, if not <laughs> criminal. And uh, the man who came into London when he was young, as uh, a kind of refugee and supposedly penniless, was fed by the British taxpayer and put into, uh, picked up and put in by his friends into, uh, I think, London School of Economics and even raised a grant from the local folk to, to pay for him and all the rest of it so that he could eventually destroy Britain, which he did actually begin two of his pals together to invest, massive investors and the three of them uh, basically destroyed <laughs> the British uh, currency until Britain had to go back to the same people to borrow money to prop up their pounds and so on and so, so, under, so devalued after that. This is, this is the rat he's a rat this man obviously uh, that's his way of thanking the British people for, you know, helping him uh, get ahead, etc. Quite, quite something, folks, isn't it? And this is a philanthropist. You think he's doing this for all, all, all that he's up to is for good intentions. He really cares about other people. No, this is a war tactic. It's a war tactic, folks. And also, I'll put up uh, this art, this particular site to an open society foundations. Uh, that uh, supposedly uh, Soros owns and so on and all the other organizations that Soros works with as well you're looking at super government here folks and I'll I'll put in the Ford Foundation as well for those who want to have a little look-see at the CIA's involvement with so much of this too as I say, I've always looked upon the CIA as an alien group really because they're certainly not American and don't have the interests of what I look upon as Americans at heart, definitely not at all uh, and it's so convoluted that with the webs that they weave, in fact it's very hard to follow them at times to find out what their particular goals are but it's a nightmare getting through it all but you can actually find they have particular goals which are not an interest of uh, Mr. and Mrs. America now there are some much bigger players who pop out once in a while to the media or the general public, sometimes they just simply publish books and so on, and they, they keep fairly quiet their role up till now in society, but I've mentioned before Jacques Attali, or he was in France of course, he was the, the, the top advisor to different French presidents for years, including President Mitterrand, who was a, a worldwide uh, socialist who uh, I think even in his coffin he had the red, single red rose placed upon it to his funeral. But he was uh, unabashedly uh, promoting the whole real socialist agenda, not the one that the general working guy thinks that socialism is. And Jacques Attali was the, the, the top advisor. But when people came to see um, even Mitterrand, uh, that he go through Attali, he was like the guard of the door, you might say, the gatekeeper, uh, who, who would see who he wouldn't see. He was, had more power 
might say, than in Mitterrand himself. I've always said advisors are far more important than the front men they put in as presidents and prime ministers. And because they really know the agenda, and it's much more a connection between advisors in different countries than meets the eye if you just do a little bit of homework. But uh, Jackson Talley uh, uh, has, he, he is often thought of as a futurist, but he's not really. He's simply one of the, the guys in on the top planning for society. And uh, I'm going to do a little critique of uh, his book I've mentioned before, his book. A brief history of the future. Henry Kissinger loves him, and all you know, all the same people who's always uh, love uh, Jack Satali. I think he, even, I saw in an article a few years ago where he and others in France and were up in a charge for international arms smuggling. This great guy who was very much uh, an altruist of society. There's always more to them than meets the eye. Anyway, I critiqued the book and um, just for educational purposes. And in the book, A Brief History of the Future, he talks about uh, the vanguard of hyper-democracy, they call it, uh, transhumans and relational enterprises. He says, when a convoy is on the move, his vanguard includes many more than the generals lolling in the midst of the troops. History bifurcates only when adventurous beings concerned with their freedom and the defense of their values advance the cause of men generally to their own great regrets. In the American tell order, this vanguard has until now been composed uh, core by core, as we've seen, he calls them cores, the different ages of civilization, of what I've called the innovative class. Entrepreneurs, inventors, artists, financiers, political leaders. In the future, part of the class, individuals particularly sensitive to the question of the future, will realize their happiness depends on that of others. That the human species can only survive united and uh, pacific, mean pacified. They will cease to belong to the mercantile innovative class and refuse to put themselves at the service of pirates. They'll become what I call transhumans. So they're, they've already gone past humanistic and the transhumans. You see. Altruistic. They're just, see, they're all there because they just love you all. That's what you're taught, which is nonsense. Anyway, uh, altruistic, conscious of the history of the future, concerned by the fate of their contemporaries and their descendants, anxious to help to understand, to leave behind them a better world, transhumans will reject the selfishness of the hyper-nomads and the destructive fury of the pirates. They will not believe that they own the world, merely recognizing they only hold it in trust. See, they hold the trust, all these big philanthropies and so on. Uh, they hold it in trust for all of us. You understand this? This can't help doing good. And it says here, they were ready to put into practice the virtues of the sedentary, such as vigilance, hospitality, a sense of the long term, and those of the nomads, ostensibly, memory, and uh, intuition. They'll feel at once citizens of the world and members of several communities. Their nationalities will be those of the languages they speak and no longer simply of the countries where they will live. For them, rebellion against unavoidable will be the rule. The insolence of optimism will be their moral standard uh, and brotherhood will suffice for ambition. They will find their happiness in the pleasure of giving pleasure. That's really why they do all. Particularly to children, they know they are responsible for. I guess we are the children, maybe. They will learn again that transmission is peculiar to man. 
Women will become transhumans more easily than men. What they've always said in all the, the studies and behaviors and so on, they can always use women to push any agenda because they're more adaptable. They can be persuaded more easily than the men are, you see. And they've been doing that for years through Bernays. You can see what he helped women become. And them start smoking and drinking and all the rest of it. Anyway, uh, this goes on to see the progressive rise of women in every dimension of the economy and society, particularly through microfinance, will add enormously to the, to the number of transhumans. And he mentions some of the uh, today's transhumans. He says we might cite both Melinda Gates and Mother Teresa. I should put Melinda Gates and Mother Teresa in the same, <laughs> same boat there. We will also find among them billionaires who have entrusted the bulk of their fortunes to a foundation as well as social innovators, teachers, creators, religious and secular women, and quite simply people of a goodwill, people for whom the other is a value in himself. Well, in the world of scarcity, in other words, in the market, the other is a rival, the enemy come to quarrel over scarce goods, the one against whom freedom is built and with whom no knowledge must be shared. For in transhumans, the other will be first and foremost the, the witness of his own existence, the way of verifying that he is not alone. The others will allow him to talk and transmit and prove generous, loving, outstripping himself, creating more than will satisfy his own needs and so on. And anyway, he, he talks on and on and on. And in other parts of the book too, he, he lumps in uh, all the other big NGO leaders and all the top uh, uh Trust funds and so on. Well, like, trust funds are the ones I'm talking about, of course, too, are the tax-free foundations that bring all to being and the guys who give you the internet and all the names you're used to that are taking all your rights away. So they're all part of it, including Red Cross, um, Doctors Without Borders, Care, Greenpeace, the World Wildlife Fund, the guys who want you to basically go into utter austerity and reduce your population. And above all, many other non-governmental organizations across the world and so on. So, it's going to be a wonderful world as you're all run by someone who basically tells you you're being run by them now, <laughs> as far as I can see. Uh, these wonderful philanthropists that really, they just live to help you. Not to get rich and, and live their rich lifestyle and so on, but uh, and to get their own corporations you know, where they, they manufacture things they will have the government push on you, like vaccines. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they do it all because they love you, you understand. Do you realize that's, that's why they, they, they went out to accumulate all that wealth in the first place? Do you understand that? Just, it's something that happens to you. Like, like you see the light, do you understand? It's like a religious experience. Where one day he just says, here I am sitting here and I'm a multi-billionaire. And, uh, and bingo, whang, it just hits you. You didn't do it for greed and to beat the other guy and to think you're a winner and your ego and all the rest of it. No, you did it to help everybody. It just hits you like that. You see, isn't it? God works in mysterious ways indeed, doesn't he? <laughs> I'm telling you. Well, it isn't just the truth that's the hardest thing to find in not just all years of civilization and getting worse all the time. It isn't just, it's complete, it's any kind of reality. Because we, we, you can't get reality unless you get the, the complete truth on any particular one thing and everything. And you ain't going to get it, folks, because there's better minds than you, supposedly. They're really out to help you. 
uh, they decide what you're going to believe and how you're going to behave and, and all the rest, including even if your society uh, or even your nation exists tomorrow or not. And you don't vote any of them in. So I don't quite know why you bother voting at all. Because all the politicians know that what I'm talking about is the truth. It's just a sham to keep you voting right now, as far as I can see. They're all on board with all the big agenda. Oh, climate change, global warming, it's man-made, blah, it's all your fault. With attaching to austerity and, and reconfigurate the complete way of living from birth to death, even if you should be born. Because if they don't need you in something, just add to the overpopulation problem. Etc., etc., etc. The scientifically designed society that I've talked about for years and years and years and years. And uh, <laughs> what can you say, folks? What can you say? So there you are. Not only are people going into transhumanism, but we already have transhumans. The people who had that special light from the heavens or wherever it came from just hit them and say, you are going to benefit all of humanity and you have a role in directing all of humanity's way of living from now to eternity and no decision shall be made without your approval. The last I heard, Italian was working in the United Nations, of course, naturally, and um, I don't know if he still is or not, I'm sure he will be because they all have, they always keep their hand in the same thing. And no matter what, they seem to get moved around too. And, uh, God knows how the arms charge went that that trial was upcoming. Or even if they, <laughs> they paid him off well enough that they never went to trial. Who knows? But it was in the papers a few years ago. I'll also put up tonight a link to an old Gilbert and Sullivan comic opera song from the 1800s on philanthropy and philanthropists and it's from the Princess Ida opera but it's quite funny actually the way it's put across to the to the general public and satire really is the only thing you're left with today and even satire can get risky today because as you can see everything's becoming more and more and more intolerant regarding free speech we've been trained for years and then, thank goodness again others have picked up on what I mean yeah, but for years the scientific socialism indoctrination that we have is so perfect with Pavlovian responses instilled into us and all the prompts we've had, etc., and the techniques of making you uh, conform to the basic peer pressure of those who are the easiest to conform and indoctrinate. That's what, how it's done, even through school onwards. And they teach you that certain just terms are bad to even inquire into or certain things are bad or wrong or racist or something just to look into, uh, or you're a Nazi or whatever it happens to be, when you just look into things. And if having a human mind, you're supposed to be naturally inquisitive. When you're being banned, banned for inquiring into anything, there's a good reason for the subject being banned that they don't want you to know about, folks. Basic to detective work is to look at, for instance, detective work with, with the terrorism has always been basic detective work of all kinds. Same thing. You find out what the intended crime is to be or has been and, and more to come. 
who's doing it, what do they have in common? And you don't leave anything out. If there's something in common that's consistent, then you better grab that incredible evidence you got. But you're not allowed to today. And it's amazing because the government agencies, and you have to, again, it's like the CIA, you wonder, are they even your own government's agencies? I don't see, there's a few agencies there that are just one as far as I can see, and they're international. And they want to know all about your cluster of friends on Facebook and your cluster of friends and your emails and all the different things you're into. It's okay for them to be detectives and to find out why you like so-and-so in this little group and, and you like each one in that little group. What do you have in common? But don't you ever do that, folks. When you look around to see who's doing what to all of you. And that's a sad story of the world, isn't it, today? You see, truth is the hardest thing to ever get a hold of, and you can't get reality unless you have complete truth. Or access to as much as possibly known as is possible. Otherwise, you come to a false impression at the end of it all, whatever the topic happens to be. Today, you're guided towards the conclusion that they want you to have. The fact that it's been away for years now. Now remember two folks that I depend upon you to help me take along because I've helped other folk get rich before but not myself. And I just want to take along here. I should mention too that those who have seen videos up on YouTube and so on of me uh, giving talks, especially one in particular, done next to your lake, that wasn't my house. That was uh, really uh, rented by the crew and the whole thing uh, to do the documentary. And I, I couldn't afford that place. And that was in Sudbury, and I don't live in Sudbury. And, and, uh, and it's an interesting story to even that particular house. It's a coincidence, really, but uh, someone at the university apparently owns it. And uh, it's an appointed position at the university. And uh, he gets a lot of grants and everything else, too. Right down to, I think, too, to the... Reinsulating for global, you know, or for thermal loss and all the rest of us. It's stuff that we can afford, you know. Everything's ironical, isn't it, in this day and age? And you're already socialist because to get ahead in life, if you're not going into the big uh, philanthropic organizations that are simply part of the, of the socio-political structure system, the super one, uh, then you have to work in some kind of government agency or something to get a pension for for life and to have a steady career. Otherwise, being drill public average today is terribly scary. And for many it's impossible because they can't make ends meet. And the same with me too. So if you can, uh, for all the folk that have, even universities too, that have used my stuff all the time, uh, it'd be nice to, have to see uh, a, a few bucks sent my way once in a while. And you can always donate, donate to me at cuttingthroughmatrix.com. Because it's really appreciated and uh, I've got a lot more I'd like to do uh, and put out an awful lot more in the future if it's possible. But it would be helpful to me just to get by, and I mean just tick along here, if you can just spend a few bucks once in a while as you're going through all this stuff for free. 
and help me keep going. And you can also buy the books and discs at cuttingthroughmatrix.com and hopefully that will help me survive. But as I say, there's an awful lot more, awful lot more, folks, to society than you'd ever, ever suspect. This superstructure system across the whole planet. And it's very old, well-organized, and there's many names for different branches of it. It's all the one. It's all the one. Kind of sad to think that your grandparents and your parents and yourself, you've all been born into it and directed along a particular path, uh, a pre-planned path, which even involved uh, collapses and depressions and economic, uh, near economic collapses, all scheduled years in advance for big changes, you see. And you'll have another one coming not too long after they sign the, the big treaty this month, the COP21, which ties in the whole thing with Agenda 21 and sustainability and all that kind of stuff. A complete new way of living. It's all part of this COP21 and Agenda 21 Millennium Project. Many names for the same thing because there's no, there's no aspect of human life that it does not encompass and it's not heavily involved in. All started up again by philanthropic organizations, supposedly, and um, Canada's even own more is strong. The Biodiversity Treaty and... And so on and so on. This goes on and on and on and on and on. You didn't vote for any of this. Not at all. Anyway, as I say, uh, help me take a long by occasionally. And remember too, you don't have to send a lot of cash. Just send whoever you can afford once in a while. Because it would add up if enough folk did it. And where I am now, uh, I might just get through the winter with the heat. It all depend. And uh, the winters now are getting worse and worse and worse as we go into global warming, you see, getting colder and colder. But uh, that's the way it is, you know. Fantasy works awfully well, and incessant propaganda works incredibly well. It's just the creation of a new religion, you see. It's worked awfully well. It was planned that way too. I've read all the guys who helped set up the whole agenda regarding the climate change before. From uh, even the this early 70s and prior to that onwards, how they would work it into society's consciousness and belief system. So from Hamish, myself, Ontario, Canada, it's good night. And may your God, your gods, go with you.